Hello, welcome to the Home Roots Podcast, where we conduct cross-country check-ins with artists, producers, industry folks, community folks, house concert hosts, and impresarios who make up an interwoven network of music lovers, balladeers, and tune makers across the globe. My name is Tim Osmond. This show is produced and engineered by Grant Simpson. We have a very special guest today. Rick Pillary joins us from his home in Vermont. He is a talented singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, storyteller, and member of the mythical order of the Rose Tattoo. Uh, He has written a book recently called The Banjo Man and uh, has decades and decades of touring experience and stories. He's going to talk about his uh, time with Pete Seeger and Utah Phillips. And first, we're going to kick it off with a song called Marfa Lights. multi-instrumentalist and songwriter uh who's just written a whole book isn't that right Rick? <laughs> yeah the the banjo man adventures of an american folk singer tim you know that 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 title of course didn't come from me that was from my editor <laughs> He, he he kind of felt that it it really uh kind of hit the the way that that this book uh told the story and it is it is filled with adventures um i mean cuz you know sometimes you think of adventures now what can that mean you know if i was just doing you know kind of just normal gigs 
I think, well, that, that wouldn't qualify. But being out on the road, uh, riding with cowboys and sitting in sweat lodges and traveling with the gypsies and doing the kind of things that, that make up my life, I, it kind of qualifies. So I, I said, okay, Tim. His name's Tim also. <laughs> Tim Brooks. I said, okay, Tim, uh, I'll go with it. And that's how we came up with that title. You know, the, the book uh, it was based on some of my earlier writings uh, from my first book, The Road is My Mistress. And I, when I put that out, the story wasn't finished. And um, the sad part is that there were a lot of, um, of thank yous and goodbyes that I really, I really had to tell. Um, you know, with Utah Phillips and with Pete Seeger and Jimmy Driftwood, uh, those are the, my mentors, the, the ones who really taught me a lot about life. And I those felt are some pretty good mentors, Rick. Oh, I'll tell you, it, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, each one of them added uh, so much, you know, especially Pete and, and Utah. Jimmy, I didn't know as long, but he, he he was just really an interesting character. And we got along well together. And part of friendship, as you know, Tim, is you take care of one another. And so I, uh, I interviewed him for Sing Out magazine because I knew that it would possibly be one of his last interviews because he was getting old. And I felt like this is something that I can do. This is something that I can do for him, like a, a last kind of hurrah, so to speak. And it, it really did mean a lot to him. And so the thing that Utah taught me was you take care of your friends. You know, uh, it's not just about the music. It's about friendship. It's about taking care of each other in the good times and through the difficult times. And uh, I, I've learned a lot through that. I mean, there was one point where I was visiting with Jimmy Driftwood and he had a mild heart attack and I had to actually pick him up in, in, in my arms and bring him into the car, you know, and, and, and rush him to the hospital, you know. Um, it was like, I was saying to myself, yeah, I really wanted to get to know Jimmy Driftwood, but I didn't want to know him that <laughs> like <Yeah>. this. <laughs> you were there though, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's the kind of things that, that um, you you get out of this life, you know, when you have that dream of being a musician, that's that starry eyed dream, you know, when you're a young kid, like when I, I first got the idea when I was 15 years old and, you know, you thought about what your life could be like and you had all of these uh, uh, ideas, um, which the reality of it is that it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> I've said in other interviews, you know, for, for a banjo player, it's like not a, like rock and roll, you know, with uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll. It's like as a banjo player, you, you attract old men and dogs. <laughs> sex, drugs and flat and scrub. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But uh, it's been it's been a really uh, great uh, experience to learn from all the people uh, that I've come in contact with. And the, and the nice thing is, is when I talk about America, you know, I played down in South America, I played a lot in Canada. And, you know, I mean, it's not like thinking of America as the United States, you know, 
it, it is so much more than that uh, in the way that this music um, is accessible to people all over the world. And, and everybody kind of makes a place for it. I mean, I, I know that you probably have had these experiences where you might not be able to speak the language with another person, but you can play Cripple Creek. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. You could the, sit. The music of of the folk music world is you know, is kind of unifying in that way, isn't it? It is. It is, and I I think that um, being around with with real traditional musicians. You know, when I lived in Poland back in 1984, in this village where the tradition was handed down through families, and you were, you know, being taught by people who were taught by their fathers and their grandfathers, and they're looking at you, you know, being a Polish-American my, with my mom born in Poland, that they were giving me something that I could bring back to the United States and to teach other you know, kind of Polish Americans about this heritage that basically a lot of people don't know about. And, uh, you know, so that's what I did over a thousand schools across America, teaching people uh, about the Polish uh, traditions and bagpipes and, and all of that. You brought your bagpipes with you? Oh, yeah. I had five yeah. sets, five, five different uh, styles. And I would go into the schools and I would go through some of some of the traditions. <laughs> My teacher, Yusuf Broda in Poland, he said, uh, you can't take a culture and pull it apart and take what you want from it. In other words, you can't just play the bagpipes without showing them the dance. So then I had to teach the dances to the school so that I would play the pipes and they would do the dances. And, and some of them were, were courting dances. And um, so I would get to the school, you know, and, and the principal would say, so what is this, uh, this Polish program that you're going to do here? I said, well, you know, I said, it's music and, and, and it's kind of, you know, audience participation. And I said, I'm, I'm going to need your help for, for these, uh, these dance uh, parts. And he said, well, well, what do you need? I said, well, I mean, the first one is, is pretty easy. It's a hand clapping dance and, and everybody, you know, claps their hands in a circle and goes one way and the other. I said, but the second one is a courting dance. He said, well, 
well, what do you mean according dance? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to need you to pick out one of, one of your teachers, you know, your female teachers. And he said, well, why? I said, well, you know, it's a tradition that when you play the pipes and you do this song, it's sort of like uh, musical chairs. And uh, that uh, you, you go around with this handkerchief and uh, you, you go around and, and everybody keeps the, the, the students and the teacher keeps spinning around. And when the music stops, I lay down the handkerchief and I, I ask the woman to kneel down and I kiss her on the cheek, you know, and then I get up and then dance with her. He says, you kissed her on the cheek? I said, yeah. I said, <laughs> I said don't worry. You know, it could be just like an air kiss. And, and, and he says, and then, and then what happens? He says, well, well then I hand, I hand the handkerchief to the teacher and then she does it. And she picks one of the students. The teacher kisses one of the students? I said, yeah, but it, it's just tradition. You don't have to worry about it. And, and I said, and then, and then what happens? Said, well, and then she gives it to the students. And then one of the students picks one of the students and they kiss. And he said, let me, let me get this straight. He goes, you're going to come and kiss a female teacher. Then she's going to kiss one of the students. Then the students are going to be kissing. I said, yeah, it's, it's all tradition. Don't worry about it. I said, you just have to watch out when I swing the axe when I'm doing the, the robber's dance. He said, you're bringing an axe? <laughs> it's all how you frame it. Right? You know, and, and we would do this and, and the school would just love it. The kids would, I mean, I could never do this program in this, this day and age. This is, remember, this was back in the early 1990s I was doing this program. And, you know, so I was bringing in the real deal and really trying to get people to see how a tradition works. And more importantly, I was trying to tell the kids that each of us here, we all have a tradition that's part of who we are, you know, and that makes you special. And you have your own dances and you have your own food and and your own customs and traditions, and always to be proud of who you are. And that was the important thing, was for the kids to feel that, hey, you know, I have my own traditions, I have my own things, and maybe that opens up the door to explore some of these ideas. So I have to ask you, uh, did you start with the banjo or did you start with guitar? What was your first instrument? I, I came from a long line of musical failures. <laughs> I, I wanted to play the saxophone when I was a little kid. And, uh, and uh, I was too small. They, 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 they decided that I was too small and they gave me a clarinet. You can't play Wooly Bully on a clarinet. And so I, I, I didn't practice the, yeah. the clarinet went away. Then I got into this marching band, you know, and they gave me the, I wanted to play the drums because like all the cool kids played the drums. Yeah, of course. But all the drums were taken and all they had was a baritone horn. It was old and ugly. And when you, you opened it up, you could smell years of spit. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> and and then the, the the teachers were like concentrating on the people who were actually musically inclined so right. for somebody like me they weren't giving me any instruction and so i was you had to bring it home with you to practice yeah i was you trying to play it home with you the big giant the big giant case yeah, yeah. You and bring that home every day and practice right so i was trying to, and and i found out years before millie vanilli that sometimes it's better if you actually just hold the instrument and don't play it because nobody complains about the notes that you don't play <laughs> 
Well, that was a, that was my second musical failure. And then uh, I wanted to play guitar, and uh, my poor mother, mother uh, she got me this, you know, department store guitar, and um, I couldn't figure it out. I, I never saw anybody play it. I, I couldn't figure it out. It sat in the corner. So when I was 15, and I got this idea about the banjo, like the banjo was like, it was in my head. I was carrying around um, equipment for a rock and roll band, you know, a little you know, high school garage band. So I'm schlepping these big amplifiers all the time. But in my head, I was hearing like Foggy Mountain Breakdown. I was hearing different sounds in my head, even though that, that there was no one playing it. And, and it was drawing me to this instrument. And uh, then a friend of mine who was the, the road manager, he played an, an acoustic guitar and he, I was talking about the banjo. He said, well, did you ever see this guy, Pete Seeger? He's on Sesame Street. I didn't know right. Pete Seeger. And so one day I, I saw him on Sesame Street and it was like amazing. It, it was like, wow, this is, this is what I want. So I told my mom I wanted to play the banjo. She told me how to take lessons. Well, I call up the music store and I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this banjo. And, and uh, he says, well, we have lots of banjos. We have a four string banjo, we have five string and uh, we have a 12 string banjo. And being 15, what do you do? You, oh God, we're gonna have the 12 string, right? No, he said, he said, most. We're, we're all out of the 12 string, but we do have a four string, right? Okay. And so I go in there, he doesn't have a banjo. He has a Les Paul electric guitar and a Mel Bay book that was similar to the Mel Bay book that I had when I was playing the clarinet. <laughs> and I, I was getting really frustrated. I saw Pete on, on, on uh, I, I realized that he had a television show called Rainbow Quest. And so I would watch him on Rainbow Quest and I noticed he had five strings. And I said to, to the guy, I said, well, I see this guy on TV, he has five strings. A kid, he goes, kid, you learn how to play that four string. We'll just drill a hole and tack one in there. <laughs> he didn't know anything. I would tell that story to Pete Seeger later on. He would crack up. <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> and then Pete, you know, he came. Uh, I was still in high school. I played hooky. Uh, Pete was going to come to uh, college, uh, Douglas College. And I, I played hooky that day, hitchhiked over there. And my hair was really long back then, so I kind of fit in to the college crowd. You know, nobody questioned about what I was doing there. And I saw Pete, and he was up there on, on the stage singing, and the whole room was singing with him. And I realized it was like, it sounds kind of funny, but I'm going to tell you the truth. It felt like my body felt filled with light. And I felt like I had this different focus than I ever had in my life. And I said, this is what I want to do with, with my life. And after the, his concert, he was backstage and we had a petition against the Vietnam War. And I went back there and uh, everybody was signing petitions. There were little babies crawling around, people of all different ages. And I, I, I got up the courage and I said, hey, Pete, why do you play the banjo? And he looked at me and he smiled. He goes, because I like the tone. <laughs> For me, at 15, it meant it like that he would actually talk to me. And that was that was the beginning. And then I wrote him a letter and he wrote back. He wrote back and he had the little banjo on there. And he said, Rick, 
Someday I'm sure we'll meet. But right now, you can learn more from your fellow workers. You know, and... Okay. Uh, and so, uh, and that was that was sort of my experience with with Pete for a while. And I joined up with a Clearwater. I would go down and 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 see the Clearwater come in in New York City in the Pumpkin Sale, and Pete would be there, Lori Wyatt, and a bunch of people on the boat. And uh, this one guy named Bob Killian, who was sailing with with them, he said uh, he saw that I had my banjo with me, I had my long neck Gibson banjo, and I played a little bit. And he said, uh, oh, you know, you should you should join up with with us, you know, and sail with us, you know. And and that was like the door was kind of opening at that point. And so then I was going to other Clearwater events, but I never really got to talk with Pete. You know, it was like mm, I was still kind of nervous about it. And then something magical happened. Pete was playing in Central Park with Arlo Guthrie. And he was going to do an outdoor concert, free concert. The same day, my mother took my two sisters, Lisa and Tina. Now, they're about 10 years younger than me. Uh, uh, and the other one, she must have been about seven at that time. They all went over to the park and they're playing and they saw everybody setting up all of these, these blankets. And they said, well, what's going on? And they said, oh, Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie are playing. Now, my sister Lisa... She got the idea with all the records in the house and all that, that I had, that I, I knew Pete. She got this idea that we were like best buddies or something. <laughs> and she went over to the person who was um, minding the, the, the backstage and she said, my brother's with Pete Seeger, can you take me there? And he did. And so the two young girls showed up. Uh, Pete was backstage and they went backstage and I wasn't there. So to this day... My sister won't tell me exactly what happened, but whatever happened was very important because that night he did the concert and he said, well, tomorrow I'm going to be doing a Clearwater Benefit in Hoboken, New Jersey. Everybody's welcome. So, of course, I was going to go to that. Now, I get up in the morning, put my banjo on my back. I'm heading out the door. My sister Lisa looks at me and she goes, did you know that Pete Seeger files his nails? I'm like, what? I'm like, I have no idea of what what took place. So I go out and I get over to the, uh, to the concert area. And as usual, you know, there'll be a bunch of young kids and we'd all be playing a little bit of music. No. So I, I was there and I'm playing a little bit of music with a few young, young people. And Pete comes by, unzips his 12 string guitar and he starts playing along with us. Now you can imagine what I'm feeling at this moment. You know, I'm like, sure. I'm like, I couldn't believe it, you know? And then the music stops and Pete looks at me and he goes, I haven't seen you before. Who are you? And like, I'm, I go, uh, I'm Rick Polari. And he, go, he smiles, he goes, Rick, I met your sisters yesterday. I said, what? He said, I met your sisters yesterday and they told me that you were a good banjo player. Why don't you come up on stage and we'll play a couple of songs together. And he brought me up on stage and my life changed. And that's sort of like where the beginning of my story really starts. Wow, that, what a beginning that is. I haven't read all through your book, but I'm really anxious to hear all the stories you have uh, with, with Utah as well. And um, Mitch introduced me to Utah uh, towards the end of... Uh, Utah's life, there was a big benefit here in Winnipeg for him, and uh, yeah, just just learning about him and 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 his music and his 
his attitudes and his just he was very uh, educated guy and and you know part of the reason that I I I wrote this book I was telling you that this the story needed to have an a closure kind of thing not that yeah, right. not that it ever closes but and I needed to be able to write down the things that I learned from my mentors for people who will never have that chance. Yeah. You know, we've been we've been really lucky in life to, to spend time with these people who shared so much with us. And they told us all these different things. And there was a very different mentoring from Pete Seeger to Utah. Pete was visionary. Absolutely, yeah. Pete was always, he'd be telling you, well, Rick, you should write this person. Uh, you, you should contact that person. Did you ever think of doing this? And then he would send you all these little postcards, you know, and he would tell you what to do there. He always was giving you a path. Utah would call you up and go, Rick, how was your gig last night? I said, well, you know, I goes, how many people were there? He said, was it, was it stage lighting? Uh, he said, if there wasn't stage lighting, you know, he would tell you, well, you can get a, a, an industrial soup can. You know, go out and get the soup can and then um, take the soup uh, out of out of it and and put a light bulb in there and put a piece of colored uh, cellophane. And then you got a, a stage light and then you leave that behind for the next performer. So they have have some stage lighting. He'd say, you know, what were you wearing? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I? He said, what were you wearing? Were you? He said, always bring two shirts. I said, two shirts. I thought he was pulling my leg, Tim. What do you mean two shirts? You got to have two shirts. You're going to go to the show. You have a red shirt on. There's a red curtain behind you. You're going to disappear. The next day, you put on a black shirt. There's a black background. You're going to disappear. Carry two shirts and you'll always have the right kind of, you know, way to pop out because that's what, what, you know, you want to do. I didn't believe him. Well, the next month, I wore the wrong shirt at every show. I, I was doing this interview with Sarah Lee Guthrie, right? I had a nice red shirt. They had this big red curtain behind me. And it looked terrible. I'm hiding behind a black amplifier. <laughs> and I said, he's right. He's right. Go to a festival. First thing you do, walk around. Say hello to every person. Every person who's watching a gate. Go talk to them. See how they're doing. Go into the kitchen. See how they're doing. Make sure that everybody at the festival knows that you're there and that you're supporting what they're doing, that they are part of the community. And he said, and you know, you might need their help at some point. You might need to get through that gate. And they'll remember that you took the time, you know, to, to yeah, open that right. door. And so, you know, the, I wrote a whole chapter about those kinds of things so that people would get an idea of like, this is, it really is like this trade. And we do learn from one another. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of things out there that tell you what to do. You know, yeah, carry a notebook in your pocket. Especially for performers who are making that transition from being, you know, just a campfire singer to deciding to be professional and yeah. going out and doing their there isn't really any formal instruction. You just kind of, it's a school of hard knocks and <laughs> asking other people about, you know, what their experiences are. And yeah, so. And it's hard. It's hard to learn. You know, that's why, you know, doing a thousand schools, that was my boot camp. 
you know, every day, four schools a day in different towns, in different communities, living in my van on the road, you know, with my dog, you know, uh, away from everything. And um, it was so important for me. Uh, I would not have been able to do the kind of things that I later did had I not went through that that period. And it was Utah who really, he said that, Rick, it's really great. You're making money. You're doing these school tours, but you're never going to be the kind of performer that you want to be until you really start going out and playing some of the venues, the clubs and, and the folk festivals. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he sent me his PR packet. That's one of the first things he did. He sent me his PR packet. He said, here, this is what, what my PR packet looks like. Maybe you can learn from that, how to make your own PR packet, you know? And, and it's, it's so funny. So that I'll, I'll give you an idea. So, so that's Utah's hands-on mentoring. Right. I asked Pete Seeger uh, when I was young, I said, Pete, I have this show. I have to put together a set list. Any, I, I, any good tips? Pete thinks, he goes, well, Rick, start with something you know. Then look out. Look out into the audience. See who's there. Young people, old people, white people, black people, rich people, poor people, city people, country people. He said, become like a needle and go through all the buttonholes of all of the people that you see and find a song that's right for them. And if you do everything right, all you do is pull the string, zip, and everybody starts singing. <laughs> wow, that is so brilliant. I mean, it's so simple too. You know, and, and you know, it, he's right in what he said, but it, it was just so funny. I'll never forget it, you know. You can do that or could do that yeah. easily. Oh, and yeah. Obviously, that's what Pete Seeker did. And it, it really, those kinds of things really stuck with me um, throughout my entire life. And every time that I'd run into a problem, you know, I had my mentors. And I, you know, I didn't bother them, you know. Uh, but, I, you know, I would, I'd call on them. I, I mean, Pete, <laughs> you know, he was, he was kind of funny because, you know, like, I, I, I would be not far from Beacon you know, on the throughway, I'd call him up. I said, Pete, I'm passing through. I'm, I'm, I'm over, over near Newburgh. He goes, Rick, Toshi's not here, but I've got a potato. If you come over, we can have some lunch. So sure enough, I get over there, drive up that driveway of his, you know, and I, I mean, that's the whole thing. Anybody worth visiting has a difficult driveway. And Pete's was one of the worst. <laughs> it was so hard to get up and down that driveway. You just, you know, your car bounced all over the place. So Pete's there and Toshi's not there. And he's got this one potato and he slices it in half and he puts butter on this side and puts it in the oven. And we sit there and we wait for the potato and he puts out the plates and we're sitting at the table, and you would think that we're having a feast. We had this, each of us had a half a potato. <laughs> but, you know, that was the precious times. Sure. The times it that... It wasn't about the potato. It wasn't about the potato. It was about, it was about being with somebody that you, you cared about and that they wanted to be with you, or you wouldn't be there, you know? 
and uh, I spent sometimes weekends up there. You know, you'd, you'd go up there, you're, you're on tour, and uh, you just stopped in because I, you know, Toshi would be saving up the uh, bottles, um, mason jar bottles, because we were making honey and we had an exchange where I would pick up the empty bottles and then. Uh, I would when we we'd have our harvest, our honey harvest. I would bring some honey back to them. So I used to stop and get the bottles. And Toshi, one time, she looks at me. She goes, "Rick, where where are you off to?" I said, "Well, I I gotta go sort of out west." She said, "You really don't have to go right now, do you?" I said, "Well, you know, it's gonna take a few days." She said, "Well, Peter needs some help with the maple syrup. Don't you think you could stay a day or so?" <laughs> How can you say no? How can you say no? You know. And that was the thing that I I didn't really understand in, until Pete was gone when uh, when his grandson uh, Katama said, you know, Pete Pete didn't ha- his family had separated and he was in boarding schools a lot, so he was separated uh, from his family. So he decided that he wanted to make everybody his family, and you could feel that. That was it. He went out there. And he gave that aura that we were all in this together. We're all going to sing together. We're, we're, you know, I mean, God knows how many people he got to pick up garbage. <laughs> and they yeah. loved it. They loved it, yeah. you know. The Hudson River. Oh, gosh, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was through that, that kind of, of mentoring that uh, that helped me a lot. And I would get these letters. One time I was out on the school. I was having a really bad week. I was out doing the school tour. And it was just one of those awful weeks. And I was getting my, my mail, general delivery. Now, you're not really that important when you have to go into the post office and ask for a letter by general delivery. And I opened up the letter. And it was from the, the school assembly. But inside was a letter from Pete. He had written to to the school assembly and wrote me a letter, you know, to cheer me on while I was out out there doing the work. And, you know, the thing is, I'm just one of hundreds of people all over the world that that he took time with. There's a story. He he said that there was a, a young guy from Italy wanted to know how to build a 12 string like his 12 string. So. Pete went around and in the barn he found a 12-string that was broken up. He put it in a box and he sent it to him. He said, here, see if you can put this back together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about that. You know, it's it's a different, it's almost like when, you know, I, I, Tim, I'm sure you remember Pete's book, the How to Play the Five-String Banjo yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how he didn't put the whole song in there. Yeah. And how frustrating that was. And he did it on, on purpose because he wanted you to have to take on the, that task of finding out how to finish the song. That it wasn't all perfectly gift-wrapped. Like, here's the song, it's all finished. Here, here's part of the song, and you can figure out the other half. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. Uh, well, you can tell that, that I, I really miss, miss all of those, uh, those folks, uh, and so many more. You know, because when we talk about, about this, this chain, some people are well-known. But there's so many other people who are not well known who are just as important. You know, my friend Yanko, who taught me how to play uh, certain things on the bagpipes, no one, you know, probably will know him, but he was just as important in so many ways. And now he's gone, but 
the young people realize that he's important, and now they're trying to to find out what this man knew, and you know, and we you know we go through life, and I don't I don't think we realize you know what our journey is going to be like and and what we're going to be able to do, um, and uh, and a lot of it just you know sort of comes it seems to me and I don't know if you've had this experience Tim the things that you you want the most don't happen right away some of them the things that you're not expecting are the things that are the most wonderful oh absolutely you know you're yeah. you're working you know or or the other th- the phrase that I love is the things that you want are things that you already have yeah <laughs> you know yeah often things just come to you and when they come to you it's the best you know uh instruments uh, yeah art yeah uh houses sometimes oh yeah places to live <laughs> cars it like they that. they Even appear friends and people and relationships they appear when they're needed they just yeah. they when when it's the right time those yeah. things manifest and sure do. And in my book, I talk about, I'm a, a great believer. I have a thing called a book of dreams, which is, uh, my wife is a handbook binder. All right. So she's, they've been binding books since 1870 in her family and all classic kind of, you know, uh, leather bound gold tooling. And so I have this book that I write my projections in. I call my book of dreams and I make dream circles and, and use uh, creative visualization. Um, and it works for, for, most of the time, the things that, that you, you kind of really focus yourself on, that they, they will appear when they want to, you know. And there's a long story that I'm not going to go into about that in my book that you can read. But it was a, another thing that, that Pete would often say. He said, Rick, be like a racehorse. Put your blinders on. Don't look what's on the side of you. Just look for the finish line and keep going straight ahead. And you'll get there, you know, and that's wonderful. It, these little things, I mean, you carry them with you, you know, yeah. and when things get tough, like right now, you, you're, you know, I think a lot of us are wondering what would these people that we admired, so what, what would they be doing right now? How would they be getting through this? I don't know. I've never had anything like this i've i've experienced some you know like we lived in i lived in poland under martial law in 1984 and everything was rationed and everything like that but still you could get through life it was difficult but now it's like everything that we had looked for i lost an a complete tour of europe that i had worked almost Six months on putting it together, and I had it was all lined up: universities, Switzerland, Poland, Germany, and the COVID nineteen came. And because I have a lot of friends from overseas, they're telling me what's going on. And I was preparing myself, but when it hit, uh, I I did not realize just how bad it it it, it is. It's not, it's going to be, it's, it's bad right now. Everybody that I know, nobody's working. 
Nobody. Nobody has any gigs. Everything is down. Everybody's going to live streaming. We're trying to hold on to our dignity. Uh, and that, to, to me, that's what it's about, too. It's, it's like when you're doing your work, you're doing your music, you, you have dignity. You, you have a, a spirit about who you are. When that's stripped away, it gets difficult, you know, because you, know, you work so hard to get to a certain place. So for me, the live streaming uh, has been vital. You've been doing a lot of that? Yes, an awful. Well, I started doing it long before it was fashionable. Uh, had, <laughs> I had this thing called the Great Vermont Barn Dance Show that I kind of based on the old 1940s radio shows of the, you know, and I had a big backdrop in the town hall with this, my ear trumpet microphone and and. and it was really cool and it was live streamed. So it was going out all over the world, you know? So here we are in tiny little Vermont in Heinsberg Town Hall and we're broadcasting to people over in Australia and Switzerland and, and, and everywhere. And so I was learning about live streaming that way. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing because there's so much that can go wrong. <laughs> There's so much that, and, and a lot of it did, but, you know, I looked at it like sort of pioneering television, you know, where you expect that things are going to go bad. And if you let the audience know that we're in this together and we're going to do the best that we can, but maybe things are not going to work out perfectly, you know, it's, yeah. it's sort of like the, um, I love that, that tradition in Japan where they have a pot, an old pot and it, and it, and it gets cracked. And instead of throwing the pot away, they take gold and they fill the crack with gold. And the gold actually makes the pot more beautiful. So that, you know, it's, it's being you know, perfectly imperfect, <laughs> you know. And so it's that idea that things are not perfect in life. Everything uh, can go in many directions. And what we have to do, we have to make the best of what we have. And, and try to, um, to make it beautiful in our own way. Well, I, th I think that, that one of the things I have to say is how much I've enjoyed doing Home Roots. Uh, and what's important about Home Roots is the fact that it is about community. It's about building community. And the fact that you go uh, and, and have a meal with the people, first of all, then you do the concert, you stay there that night, you have breakfast, and then you go to the next place. And then you hear all the stories. I mean, the first thing that, that when, I, when I did my first Home Roots, I think it's what they call it, Cherry Bomb Tour, that, that one in Ottawa. <laughs> that was a while ago, yeah. And, yeah. and it was the first thing that I was, I was brought to a, a Tim Hortons, first day. My host took me to a Tim Hortons. He said, this is how you start the day in Canada. You get your coffee and you sit here and you just listen. And that was like the best advice. Every day I would go to a Tim Hortons, sit there with, you know, a double-double, <laughs> which I became really fond of, but boy, they had a lot of zip to them. <laughs> and, uh, and learn from the, the different people. It was not just about me. Um, playing my music, but it was about me learning from the communities, learning about the important things for, that, that, that were important in their town. 
if somebody needed a banjo instruction, I was there to give it to them. Uh, I did that many times. I, w I would teach people how how to play this or that or or uh, anything that I could give back to that community that I was visiting. And I have so many friends that are on Facebook that are from those tours from Home Roots. There was there was one that I did in the maritime thing. It was one of those crazy nights, you know, where not many people show up. And this one gal show, shows up. And I almost like had to do part of the show just for her. <laughs> she, she's on every day. She says hello to me. Wow. Every day, you know. And so you make these friends. I learned about Biltmore Hats in, in Gulf. Gulf, yes. And they took, they, even though the, the factory was closed down, brought me over there, showed me where it was. I have a Biltmore, you know, uh, that I wear sometimes. You know, it's, oh, you got one. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, cool. yeah. Really nice one, too. And um, I, I'm crazy about hats. Uh, that's a whole nother story. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that was one of the things, Tim, when I'd be out on the road, one of the things I would always do is go into a hat shop, a cowboy hat shop. You know, I'm out west, and I would go there, and I'd watch the guys steam the hats. And they would tell stories while they were steam. And it was like magic, the way that they would move their hands. It was like, I don't know, did you ever try to steam a hat? No, I've never even seen it done. It's really not easy. It looks really easy. But then when you try it, and the way that hat turns out... <laughs> Well, it's all one piece of fabric. Isn't yeah, it? you 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 have to you know hold it over the the steam, and then you have to use your hands. And while they're talking, they're talking to you. They're just making these beautiful motions, and they can they can turn a hat into a, a real piece of art. You know, so I, that was my favorite thing to do. When if I wasn't at a museum on my time off or at a, a park, uh, that I'd be at a, at a hat shop. And wherever I went, I would pick up stories. You know. That's where the songs came from. That's what Utah would say, you know? I mean, there's only so much of a personal experience that we can have. We have to open ourselves up to listen to other people's stories. And sometimes you are providing a, a real important service because that person couldn't tell that story in song. And you give them that gift back. Uh, this uh, ride in the westbound. I think you probably have a recording of it. Okay, so the story is really funny. So I'm at the, Utah got me to go to the Brit uh, Hobo Convention years ago. He said, Rick, you got to go out there and meet with the old hobos, Steam Train Murray and, and all the kings and queens of hobos, and, and just listen, listen to what they have to say. So I went out there and I became friends with a lot of them. And, uh, and one of them is a hobo king named Frog. And Frog got his, his moniker, his nickname, the way he used to leap onto a moving boxcar. And Frog it was kind of sickly, and so all the old hobos were worried that he's going to catch the westbound. So when you catch the westbound, you get that little last train ride up to heaven. So you don't want to catch the westbound if you can help it. Well, I was on tour over in Europe, and I got an email from my hobo pals, because all the hobos are online these days, and they, they told me that old Frog had caught the westbound. So I wrote this song for Frog. About two days later, I get an email from St. Paul, Minnesota. They said, oh, they had a big party for Frog. All the old hobos are there reciting poetry, remembering stories of their dear fallen comrade. When right in the middle of the festivities, they get a telephone call from, guess who? Frog. 
he's wondering, well, there's a big party going on and, and he wasn't invited. They said, Frog, we thought you were dead. He said, dead? No, no, I was robbed. He said, well, what do you mean you were robbed? He said, I'm walking down the street. Somebody lifted my wallet out of my back pocket, stole my ID. They started pretending they were me. They went all over the place. They went out to a bus out to North Dakota and they died. When the police found him, they found that stolen ID. They thought it was me too. They started calling everybody up and, and telling them that I'm dead. He said, well, I'm here to tell you that I'm not dead. But the good thing is I know exactly what my funeral's going to be like. <laughs> <laughs> now, wow. so last December, I get a call from the hobo community. They said, Rick, Frog really did pass away. And his last wish was that you come to Brit and sing the song over his grave. So they said, don't worry, we'll, we'll scrape up some money. They did the hobo shuffle and they all... <laughs> I got the check, Tim. It said, cash it quick. <laughs> so I went out there with my friend Rick Nessler and I go out to the graveyard and all the hobos are there and I'm, I'm looking down and there is Frog's tombstone and the first verse of my song is on his tombstone. With my name on it. It's kind of weird, man. You're looking at a tombstone. And, you know, I live my life as a hobo. My only home is this old train. I've been a frog and a king. Man, I've done everything. Now I'm riding on the westbound train. It, you know, when Frog was living, he, he would write me letters. And he, he would call me up sometime. And, and he would say, Rick, nobody could tell of my death and resur resurrection like you could. <laughs> I live my whole life as a hobo My only home is this old train I've been a frog and a king Lord, I've done everything Now I'm riding on that westbound train Let the jungle fires burn wild and free And pass my bottle around Let the train whistle blow Tell the old bows I'm riding on the westbound I slept in every old boxcar I rode down every railroad line But I don't have to boast I rode coast to coast Now I'm riding on the old westbound Let the jungle fires burn wild and free And pass my bottle around Let the train whistle blow Tell the old bows I'm riding on the westbound Light a candle at the back of my boxcar And gather my good friends around Let the old banjo ring while the hobos all sing I'm riding on the westbound Let the jungle fires burn wild and free And pass my bottle around Let the train whistle blow Tell the old bows I'm riding on the westbound Lay me down on a blanket of cardboard. Use my bindle to pillow my head. And when my body's gone, my spirit will ride on, riding on the old whizbound. Let the jungle fires burn wild and free and pass my bottle around. 
Let the train whistle blow Tell the old bows I'm riding on the westbound Let the jungle fires burn wild and free And pass my bottle around Let the train whistle blow Tell the old bows I'm riding on the westbound I'm riding on the westbound I'm riding on the westbound one cool story. It's not it's not really funny, but it's interesting. Over in Germany, okay? Played this gig. Got this pile full of money. We get this money, put it in our pockets, go down the road in, in my friend Wilfred's uh, Volkswagen. And all of a sudden, uh, the Vol- Volkswagen the, the, dies. And the, uh, the gas pedal just collapses. All right, so we, we're stuck on the Autobahn. And we have to wait there. And we're not getting, getting anywhere. And, and finally, this tow truck comes and takes the entire pile of money that we just made and puts it into his pocket <laughs> and drops us off over at the repair shop, which is a, a BMW and, and Volkswagen repair. And the guy pulls over and he goes, we don't have that part. You're going to have to wait for a couple of days, right? And we're sitting there and we have gigs the next morning. So my, my, my friend is desperate. And he calls up his old auto mechanic, who's from East Germany, you know, from the old days. And he says, what you must do? You must find some string, some string, some string. He says, you take the string and then you wrap it around the radiator and, and then you put it around the gas pedal. And, and so we're taking notes. And the only string that we had was two Martin guitar strings, a D and an A. And we lashed those strings together and put them around the radiator and... We got back home. <laughs> so the idea is if you're on the road, always carry extra strings. <laughs> Great tip. Thank you so much, Rick. All right. Amazing. And we'd hope to uh, have you for an online show sometime. That would be yeah. really great. Seeing as you're already doing it, you're set up. Oh, yeah. It'd be great to have you on board. Well, you guys have a, a great evening. And uh, thanks so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. All right. Bye-bye. Cheerio. (laughs) Cheerio. Wow, what a fascinating guy. He's got so much to share, and um, you'll find it all in his new book. You can check him out online. Find him, Rick Palieri, P-A-L-I-E-R-I. And uh, check out our new website. Home Roots has a new website. Homeroots.ca is the address. You can check out the podcast tab and see all past episodes. And you can check out what else Homeroots is up to from Homeroots Online, doing live stream shows on Facebook, ticketed shows on Zoom, and now a new partnership with Curbside Concerts where you can order a concert right to your boulevard. It's all online on our new site. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And we will see you next week with a brand new guest and brand new topic. Keep on picking. Here's a little bit of John Henry. Sitting on his papa's knee Well, he picked
picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel. Hammer gonna be the death of me, Lord, Lord. Hammer gonna be the death of me. Well, the hammer's gonna be the death of me, Lord, Lord. Hammer gonna be the death of me. Well, the captain, he said to John Henry, I'm gonna bring that steam drill around. I'm gonna bring that steam drill out on the job. Wop that steam on down. I'm gonna wop that steam on down. I'm gonna wop that steam on down. I'm gonna wop that steam on down. Well, John Henry, he said to that captain, Well, a man ain't nothing but a man. But before I'd let that steam drill beat me down, I die with this hammer in my hand, Lord, Lord. Die with this hammer in my hand. Will I die with the hammer in my hand, Lord, Lord? I die with the hammer in my hand. Oh. Hey, Pete, it's great to have you on the Songwriter's Notebook.